Well, I'm Pastor Cabot. I, uh, I'm going to sneak a third reading in here. So, uh, so uh, Palm Sunday, in the, from its roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I say to you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is the word of God. Now, I want to, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll pray for us together before uh, getting sort of get into the message proper. Today is Palm Sunday, after all, but uh, it's a perfect day to invite uh, my friend uh, Barry Beitzel up here. Barry, if you'd, you'd come on up here, um, who is going to be leading a trip to Israel next year in the spring, and it's an opportunity for, uh, for you to uh, participate in. So, uh, Barry, if you get in the light here a little bit, and... Uh, uh, Barry, if, if you don't know, uh, has uh, he's been a uh, Old Testament professor. He's uh, written the Moody Bible Atlas. Uh, I think you're the editor on the New Living Translation. Of, uh, just lots of things there. And uh, and then I understand uh, that there's a long history of the Holy Land, but you also have a, a long history with the Holy Land. I'd, I'd love to uh, hear a little bit about that. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, yeah, I suppose I do. Uh, what I lack in quality, I make up for in quantity. So, uh, yes, I have spent my professional life uh, studying, writing, uh, visiting, uh, researching in uh, the Middle East, including Israel. So, probably for about 50 years. And I have made, I don't know, maybe 20 trips uh, professionally to this or that country, depending on what project I'm working on, and then uh, my wife and I have taken, we're estimating, we don't really know, we should have kept better records, uh, maybe 40 to 45 groups, including church groups, uh, students uh, at, at Trinity, and uh, in other contexts as well. Oh, that's a, that is tremendous background, and I, I'd love to have you tell us a little bit about the trip that you'll be leading uh, this, this coming, well, May of 2022. Yes, yes, we are doing that. Uh, one of the things that makes Christianity distinct among those who are advocates of any one of the five major religions of the world is that the role of geography plays a critical place in our holy scriptures. If you think about it for a second, unlike the scriptures of Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism uh, or Islam, the other four of the five major religions of the world there's practically no use of scripture, uh, there's practically no use of space in their, whole, in their uh, sacred writings. Maybe one to two dozen references in the whole of those writings, in each case other than in the Quran uh, that does make mention of uh, maybe as many as 40 or 50. Fewer, actually, than are mentioned in the Bible between Genesis 1 and 12. Illustrated, fired of three or four places to go and get that colt and bring it. And as they were leaving Bethany, then in what pastor your pastor read to you, it, while they are there in Bethany, he says to them, you say to this mountain, you can be moved and be cast into the deepest sea. Jesus used his space. He used where he was 
he gave certain teachings at certain locations because he used the environment where he was located. He used nature to teach theological truth. Now, that is not to say that all of scripture is re revolves around uh, the axiom of space, but it is to say that it is a considerable function of the whole of our Bible. And it is astounding to think that unlike a few dozen references, in scripture we have over 1,100 names of places, not to mention dozens of mountains and rivers and valleys and the like. And we have to imagine that these people who wrote our Bibles for us were inspired by God. And an entailment of that is that they saw and were led to believe that the spatial references were part of the storyline that they were telling. And that is why the, the idea of Christians visiting the Holy Land is almost a unique experience. It's true that, uh, in, for example, in Islam, people do visit Mecca. But the reason for doing that is not to celebrate anything that is recorded in the Quran. Uh, Christians visit the places where the events in the Bible took place, A, because we believe in a space-time Bible and a space-time world that God actually spoke real words to real people in real space, in real places. And the fact that the Bible does that um, uh, gives us Gives us great right. These are just a few quick, very quick uh, pictures of places we go. In 12 days, that uh, is the uh, so-called Western Wall of Jerusalem. Just go ahead and leave that one up uh, for a while. In fact, that may be the, almost the last one. I've, I'm behind uh, schedule here. Um, so um, the, the, the land of Israel is only about the size of the state of New Jersey. So in 12 days, if you have someone who leads you, who likes to get up early and work hard, uh, you can see where almost everything in the, in the, in the Bible uh, took place. Of course, I left my last pictures there of Jerusalem. That happens to be the Western Wall, the so-called Wailing Wall. And I'm thinking about that picture, in fact, on this day, because I'm sure that place is at least that full today. Uh, because this is um, um, uh, a Palm Sunday. So anyhow, we've taken groups um, all these many years. What is so rewarding to my wife and to me is that whether we take old or young, female or male, students or non-students, people from any section of the world, the colors is, I never read my Bible. Having this experience has transformed the way I read my Bible. Uh, that's, uh, words like that uh, keep my heart beating. They keep me on the job. I've been doing this for 50 years, and I would like to do it for 51, 52, 55, 65, but not 100. <laughs> Anyhow. It's a delight to be here and just to talk a little bit about uh, the experiences that we will have with your church in 2022.
Thank you so much, Barry. And I, I hope that if you do take this trip uh, with, with LifeSpring Community Church and with Barry, that you can keep up with him because as you can see, he's very energetic. <laughs> <laughs> hope I can keep up with him. <laughs> Thank you so much. There's information, I believe, out in the lobby on this particular trip. So if you want to find out more, you can, you can pick up one of those uh, flyers. And, and if you're online, we'll, we'll have uh, information on our website as well. Um, so uh, with that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father God, you knew us before we were born. Your eyes saw our unformed bodies all the days ordained for us, were written in your book before one of them came to be. By your creative act and because of your steadfast love, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God, you know our weaknesses, our needs, our insufficiencies, our failures. You do not overlook our sin, and you will not leave us in it. So we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Through him we've been forgiven, redeemed, our sins atoned for. We've been recreated through Christ to be creatures that you've called us to be, sons and daughters of the King, adopted by the work of Christ. As we live out our lives here on earth, we pray for your spirit to guide us and give us wisdom on how we are to make the most of our time. God, we pray that you would sanctify our hearts and our mouths and our hands and give us feet ready to share the good news about Jesus. And we pray for our community. There's a local election coming up. We pray that you would give us good and godly leadership. We pray for our leaders in government, education, business, medicine, to make right decisions that will honor you. Father God, open our eyes and ears and hearts to your word now that we might learn to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly before our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, meditating on Palm Sunday, I wrote these words, overturned tables, cursed tree of figs, Hosanna from heaven, Jesus amidst. Wondering eyes saw his actions that day. Why, King of heaven? Are you acting that way? Why indeed did Jesus act the way he did on Palm Sunday and the day afterwards? And why do we celebrate uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem amidst shouts of praise for the people? Any idea why Jesus was being praised for riding on a donkey, being entering into Jerusalem? If you do, and if you're here, you can shout it. You can shout it out in your living room, too, if you're there, but I can't hear you. But if you're here, uh, go ahead and, and let me know. Uh, why was Jesus riding on a donkey? To fill scripture, because he's a king. All right, well, a couple, couple answers there. The crowd thought Jesus might be a Davidic king. Who would take his rightful place on the throne and drive out the Romans, he would usher in a new era of government that would bring peace and joy to his people. Wouldn't we like that in our government? <laughs> Events didn't turn out the way that people thought that they would. Instead, arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus cursed a fig tree. He created havoc on the temple grounds, insulted the religious leaders, sort of a strange 
beginning for this new king. And within a week, Jesus would be tortured and crucified and buried. If Jesus was truly king of heaven, why was he acting this way? It wasn't because Jesus loved donkeys, hated vendors, and despised religious leaders. There were other reasons. Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday and throughout the following week up through the cross were done to meet our deepest need. We all have a deep need that Jesus came to satisfy. And uh, you and I might have various deep needs. We might have a need for faith, a need for a job, need for food, need for a house, need for transportation, or just for people to care about us. But what is our deepest need? Now, if you were to, if, I mean, you can answer me on this. We'll be a little interactive. It'll keep you from falling asleep and, and, and keep me up here too. So uh, what, what do you think our deepest need is? One vote for Christ. Anybody else? To be loved. To be reconciled to God. All right, we've got, some, we've got three votes for, uh, for our deepest need. Well, I believe the scripture that we heard read today will help us to understand our deepest need through what was exalted and what was cursed. Some people are thinking, wow, there's only two points to his message today. That's good because when there's three, it goes a little longer. Um, What was exalted and what was cursed? Well, what was exalted? Let's take a look at the story in our passage and uh, The scene begins in Bethany, about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And by the way, I'm a little nervous here because Barry can correct uh, anything that I've done wrong. I'm I'm probably going to get talked to after the message here. But I I believe Bethany is about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. And uh, according to the traditional accounts of that week's activities, Jesus arrived in Bethany from Jericho on a Friday afternoon celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday. And then uh, that evening was likely when Mary anointed Jesus. Uh, On Sunday, Jesus and his followers prepared to enter Jerusalem. That would be the events of Palm Sunday. Now, near Bethany was Bethpage. Now, if you you read the words B-E-T-H, bait, or beth, uh, that would mean house. So Bethpage is house of the unripe fig. I believe. I'm going to be checked on later. Um, There Jesus directed his disciples to procure a colt for Jesus to ride on in the short trip from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Um, Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, these are all places that you can visit today. And in in fact, if you do go on the the trip later or if you have an opportunity at some other time to visit uh, the land of Israel, Uh, you can actually take that trip down from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and back back up into Jerusalem. And in fact, uh, uh, Asha and I had the opportunity to do that a few years ago. Uh, It's amazing, and and it really does open your eyes to to reading Scripture and seeing the places in your mind's eye. Well, the guide on our way uh, said, and I, I believe it could be true, that uh, some of the olive trees on our, uh, on our travel actually uh, could have been there during Jesus' day. Olive trees grow uh, to be quite old. Um, and then uh, as, as uh, we were walking, as our group was walking along, we heard people singing. 
uh, pilgrims singing as they walk down into the valley and back up into Jerusalem. And this is an old, old tradition of people singing psalms of ascent and, and other things. But on that original Palm Sunday, a multitude of people spread their cloaks on the road, uh, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. They were preparing the way for the colt to ride over them. The colt was the carrier of the king, the long-awaited Messiah. Mark 11:9. those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, a word that means save us. We pray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, here, Davidic king. Uh, might have a, an animal Jesus would ride of all of us to Jerusalem, old promise. And a new savior divinely sanctioned for his role and task. Uh, the journey from Mount of Olives to Jerusalem was nothing less than a claim by Jesus of authority over his people and the power to save. Finally, the people would get good governance. Uh, people understood this on a human level. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman rule. And we know from the book of Hebrews and other places that Jesus' kingship went far deeper than that. He didn't just come simply to um, drive out the Romans. Has anyone seen a Roman lately? They're kind of in short supply. Uh, Jesus' kingship was far deeper and far longer and more comprehensive than any of us could ever imagine. So with that short part of the passage, we might just summarize saying, Jesus is king. Jesus is going to bring good government. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior who is coming into town. That's what was exalted. Now, what was cursed? Well, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem might seem strange to modern ears, but, uh, I mean, not many of us ride donkeys to any place these days, uh, let alone into Jerusalem. Uh, but the next section of our passage seems even more alien, I believe. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple courts, he looked around, and he went back to Bethany to spend the night, remember only about two miles away, and then on the way back to Jerusalem the next morning, traveling with his disciples, it says Jesus was hungry. And then Mark eleven thirteen, seeing in a distance a fig and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, but because it was not the season for figs, uh, because it was not the season for figs, and then he said to the tree, may no one eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. That seems strange to you. Fig tree, it's not the season for figs, and Jesus curses the poor fig tree because it has no fruit on it. What in the heck is going on? And then we move on. Okay, Jesus cursed a fig tree. I wonder what his disciples were thinking at that time. Okay, bad fig tree. I, I don't know. But they, they, kept on, they kept on moving on, shrugging their shoulders. The disciples followed Jesus into Jerusalem, into the temple grounds, the same route they had taken the day before when people were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. I'm not sure what the disciples expected, but it probably was not Jesus causing complete mayhem in the temple grounds. The temple dominated the landscape there. It dominated people's lives there. And Jesus came in, uh, Mark eleven fifteen. 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed, amazed, amazed and, and thinking character coming, just overturning everything. In many Bibles, the temple. Uh, there might be something to that. There is a lack of holiness in the temple for sure at this time and many other times. Um, and that was of concern to Jesus. There were, may have been corruption among the, uh, the money changers or those selling doves. But just so you know, those, those functions are necessary. The, the changing of money was necessary to pay the, the temple tax. The selling of animals, people would come into the, uh, the temple grounds and they would need to sacrifice an animal. And if they hadn't brought it with them, they would need to procure one. So uh, this was the, the way that they would get uh, an animal uh, in there. So uh, Jesus was actually stopping worship. Worship couldn't continue. People couldn't do what they're supposed to do in some cases because of this. And Jesus was not only driving out the, the money sellers, he was not just driving out the people who were providing these things, he's also driving away the people who would purchase them in exchange. David Garland writes of the temple that it was the central institution of, Je of Israel's religious, political, and economic life. Economically, it dominated more than just the skyline of Jerusalem. It also served as the central bank, the Capitol building, and Wall Street. For most people living in the city, the temple was their means of employment. Politically, the temple was the power base and source of wealth for the priestly hierarchy who ruled Judea under the Roman governor. Religiously, the temple marked separation between the holy and the secular and became the symbol of God's abiding favor and presence among the people. And the holy of holies was regarded as the radioactive core of holiness that could fend off and purify evil that surrounded Israel. As White Chain put it so well, the temple was the one place where heaven and earth are united, that absolute point of reference, which like the North Star served, serves as a compass and guarantees a divine security in the passage through life. But Jesus said the temple was a den of robbers. Where did he get that from? Well, it turns out Jeremiah wrote long ago, the prophet Jeremiah wrote in uh, Jeremiah 7.11, uh, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus was quoting Jeremiah. And then Isaiah said in Isaiah 56, 7, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's sort of a strange comment because the temple had a, a ring around it and um, only Israelites could go past a certain point. The nations couldn't, couldn't come inside. But Isaiah said, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, Jesus was saying the temple was corrupt, for sure. It needed cleansing. It had become a den of robbers. It was supposed to be the seat of justice and mercy, but it turned into corruption and hypocrisy. And in overturning the tables, Jesus declared uh, this corruption. But even so, I don't believe that Jesus was just 
cleansing the temple. I think there's more going on than that. Uh, later, one of his disciples what magnitude do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And 40 years later, the words of Jesus came true. In 70 AD, the Romans came and they took these massive stones of the temple and they tore them down. I wonder what Jesus' disciples have been thinking about his actions on the temple ground. And then on the way out, they saw the fig tree. Now, remember the fig tree, the the first instance of the fig tree, happened just before Jesus went into the temple grounds. The second instance of the fig tree, on the way out of the temple grounds. We're meant to read it that way. The fig tree has everything to do with what's taking place in the temple grounds. And so in Mark eleven nineteen, 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Disciples probably exhausted. Verse 20, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And some people believe that, uh, that it's this particular mountain that Jesus is speaking of, the Temple Mount. That the cursing of the fig tree was done down to the roots, and that the temple would fail. That Jesus said, we're we're not just cleansing the temple, we're going to change the system of worship and sacrifice and intervention between God and man entirely. That the tree, the symbol of what happened to the tree, was what was going to happen to the temple. There would be a new tree that would bring salvation. It would be the tree that Jesus hung on. There would be a new table. No longer would we be exchanging money and animals, but it would be the table of the Lord's Supper. Jesus' body and blood shed for us an intervention. You see, we need a king. We need a new leader, we need new governance, and we also need an intercessor. And what was praised and what was cursed explains to us, here's your king. He's also your intercessor. As the book of Hebrews so powerfully points out, the throne of the king is also the throne of this priest that intercedes for us, the throne of grace and mercy that we can come before God's throne because of what Jesus has done for us. And as we look at uh, the rest of this passage, Jesus talks about uh, prayer. He said, um, I'll read you the words. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, I believe uh, that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against someone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And I believe those are 
powerful instructions about prayer, but they also have a little bit to do with the temple as well. Forgiveness. Intervention of Christ for us. And we are supposed to intercede on others' behalf as well. In prayer, we lift others up to God. And also, we bring God before others as we share about Christ. So what's our deepest need? What's a need that is so deep and so foundational that all others rest upon it? You know, we need, we need love, we need to be seen, we need to be understood, we need to follow a leader who's worth following. We need to live a life that's worth following. And speaking of leadership, we need good government with good governmental leaders because the government affects us all. On a physical level, we need oxygen, a food, a place to live, clothes to wear, and in Illinois, we need big jackets in the winter. But physically, mentally, emotionally, in every other way, we have no greater need than to be reunited with our Creator. It's our deepest need. Our deepest need is to make our way back to God. So what's keeping us from that journey? Uh, Perhaps we don't have a desire to make a way back to God. Perhaps we don't believe uh, being reunited with God is our deepest need. Perhaps we are trying to take the wrong road back to God. Perhaps we feel life is good and we don't need God or that we have sinned too deeply and are not worthy of him. Hebrews 12, 14, the author writes, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, in the final analysis, it's our lack of holiness that separates us from God. Our lack of holiness is what keeps us from experiencing the most intimate love and understanding. It's what keeps us from good government with the best leaders On a physical level, our lack of holiness is responsible for our physical death. It's why we're so prideful to think that we don't need God and why we think that we have sinned too greatly to be near him. Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a Messiah and king, overturned the uh, tables in the temple ground as the indignant son of God. But he cursed the temple to let us know that that's not the way. All of the the temple worship, its prayer, its sacrificial system, the law, all of those things, Hebrews 10 tells us those are a shadow of what is to come. They point to something greater in Christ. And Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 tells us that such a high priest truly meets our needs one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints high priests, men in their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Another tree would bring life to our dead bones. Jesus would hang on the cross in order for us to make our way back to God. And that cross, the tree of the cross, points to another tree, the tree of life, spoken about in the Garden of Eden, 
and also in the book of Revelation. The cross is the way back to God. Jesus' sacrifice is the way back to God. Temple worship was destroyed in 70 AD. Our deepest need is met in a Savior who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, we can't stop there. We, we, we realize that there needs to be an intercessor. We realize there needs to be a king. Some of us uh, are really struggling with government right now. We're struggling because we don't really like our governmental leaders. We don't really like what's taking place in our nation. And during Roman times, it was no better. In fact, it might be arguably worse than what we are experiencing today. And that was thousands of years ago. But there is a governmental leader, and there will be a government that we can finally all agree upon. The king will not be elected, and his government will be according to his word. But it will bring peace and joy to the people. You say, well, that's in the future. When we go to heaven, when heaven and earth come together, that's in the future. Yes, but right now, our king is still King Jesus. And we are ambassadors of that kingdom, looking towards another land. And we, of course, want restoration to take place here as much as possible. But we need to see our identity, our deeper identity than being Americans or citizens of this community or anything else or any little subculture we're a part of. We need to see our primary identity as being sons and daughters of the king. And then we need to see our intercessor. You know, some of us, we have insurance policies. We do all these things to try and keep our sa ourselves safe. We have masks on or we have, uh, we have uh, vaccinations or we, you know, we do all sorts of things. And we, and we try to keep our, our kids safe but not having them walk in the street. And all, all these things we try to do to keep ourselves safe. But at the final analysis, what keeps us safe, there's, there is no safety apart from God. And the final analysis is we need a perfect Savior to be in that relationship so we can make our way back to God. Being in relationship with God is the greatest thing ever. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about the weight of glory. Uh, God's future for us is greater than we can imagine. And, and C.S. Lewis writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite shaking mud pot the offer of all. You see, it is to be creature. If we were to see ourselves in the future for what God has for us when we're caught up in God's glory, that we would be tempted to bow down and worship ourselves. We will be so dramatically different than we are now. We will be operating according to design because we're always designed to be connected with God. And once we are, we'll be more fully ourselves than we ever could be otherwise. This is our future. It's a dramatic vision of our future that we need to believe. I've heard people say, you know, we're only human. But humanity 
redeemed humanity has a future brighter than any of us could imagine when we treasure Christ. And so if we're to walk out of here with something, say, okay, our deepest need is to make our way back to God. Okay, I've got that. What separates me from God is my lack of holiness. The path back to holiness is Jesus. And I would say this, treasuring Christ is the most important thing any of us can do to put our lives on the right path. Holiness, fruitfulness, and worship abound when we fall on our knees and give Jesus the crown. He'll overturn temples and curse fruitless trees. Cleansing unrighteousness, he'll do as he please. Hosanna will call as we see this upstart. Treasuring Christ is the hope of our heart. Please pray with me. Father God, it is Jesus that we need to treasure. The hole in our hearts of worship, of security, of whatever is missing, Lord, let us fill it with the treasure of Jesus. We pray that each one of us, Lord, that whatever it is that's in between us and you, whether we're thinking too highly or lowly of ourselves, that we would cast it all away in order that we might receive the kingship of Jesus, that we might take our rightful places as sons and daughters of the King. We pray this in his name. Amen.